It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. And three, two, one. Well, it's a big hello to the young and lovely Diane McGrath. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Laban. You young man, you. <laughs> well, I believe we are as young as the person we are touching. So, and um, we're connected right now. So, yes, we're, we're twins. We are. We are basically <laughs> the same person. Um, it's a, it's a real thrill. It's a real uh, pleasure, and I don't. Um, say that very lightly uh, to have you as the inaugural guest on the How to Become Your Own Superhero podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. Love it. And uh, which is the, the name of the YouTube channel I set up a long time ago, um, about six months ago. And I was like, this is a great platform to How to Become Your Own Superhero. This touches on lots of really great things. So for the people out there in the world, that are very understanding and loving and have taken the time to, to watch or listen to this. Who is Diane McGrath? Uh, gosh, Diane McGrath is, I mean, the, the sort of blurb that you read about me online would be Mars One astronaut candidate, PhD uh, candidate as well. Why oh, is this candidates? Uh, <laughs> a biohacker, um, perimenopausal, 50-year-old woman uh, <laughs> who is actually a twin. I am a twin. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I've got a twin brother. And, uh, yeah, so, I don't know, just a, a general curious person that is just fascinated by what our potential is. So I love the name of your, your podcast series. I mean, it's, I think we've got, we all have such incredible potential. And, and I don't mind embracing the concept of being a candidate because it's a learning process, isn't it? I mean, you're a candidate, it's always something you're approaching and learning and, and seeking to, to become potentially, yeah. Well, look, a candidate's a great word. I mean, my background for a long time uh, was, uh, and has been up until recently, 14 years in recruitment. And huh. in order for you to get a job, you have to be a candidate at some point. Um, it's the stepping stone, really, to the next phase. So mm. it's a great way to describe, I think, a lot of the stuff that you do, Diane, and um, and and the name "How to Become Your Own Superhero" really is pretty self-explanatory. I think it's it's all about the empowerment for the individual and mm. the the understanding that really how you end up in this life is almost exclusively down to how you go about your own business. Yeah, um, with the odd you know bolt of lightning exception to the rule there. <laughs> You're, you've lived an extraordinary life to this point and you and I had the pleasure of connecting at the Professional Speakers Association Conference 
just a couple of weeks ago, which would have been probably mm. the last conference <laughs> in the world. Really of any type, exactly. It's extraordinary to think that after that, um, pretty much every conference, whether it be medical or business, just kind of shut down. The door's shut. It really Marvel. is amazing and, and quite serendipitous for mine, that, um, for my mm. end, I think. And uh, you and I connected over a couple of different things, which we can mm -hmm. maybe explore sort of a little bit later on. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit more about Mars One? I'm just going to jump yeah. straight into it because this is yeah, really that's fascinating. Yeah, sure. It's um, it's one of the the many strings in the bow. Um, we all have many passions in life. So for me, part of my interest in life is to see if we can create a sustainable society. Like, how can we become truly um, energy efficient, um, not waste food, plastic free, you know, really think about our resources in a, in a much more, um, I guess, closed loop environment. And Mars One's concept, it's a not-for-profit, apolitical organisation based in the Netherlands, but they're international, um, and they want to establish the first permanent human settlement on Mars. So I loved that. I, yeah, I know, it's like kind of like, Let's just pause for a minute. Let that sink in. That's yes, that is one way. Uh, <laughs> there is no, there's no return trip there. It's like it's like stepping inside the front door of IKEA, and you just have. There's only one. There's only one way. There's only one way in IKEA. Um, it's basically so, the same thing, really. Exactly. Absolutely. Just, and we'll have flat packs too. Same time. Let's <laughs> <laughs> hope they're easier uh, so, to assemble. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the concept by by wanting to go one way to Mars. Mars One is doing that because it's more efficient. They don't have to develop the technology to return. There's been over 50, 60 million missions to Mars since the 1960s, and they've all been one way. Uh, and about 80 to 90, no, about 84% of them, I think it is, has, have been successful as well. So when people think, oh my gosh, you're gonna die, it's like, well, I've got a much better chance of surviving than dying, but that's okay, let's not worry about <laughs> Funny how people, it's that negativity bias thing too. It's like the, and the, the discount of, of what aspect of either risk or opportunity. What do you discount there? It's all yeah, completely yeah. dependent upon your value, right? Um, so, so, yeah, so their idea is to use existing technology and go one way to Mars. Uh, and I loved that idea when I first heard about it for multiple reasons. Uh, the first being was that if we, if we have to go and live on Mars, we would treat everything differently than if we're just visiting. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, you know, when you go on holidays somewhere, don't you just let loose and relax and you might get connected with the local environment, but you might not as well. And you might use your behaviours in that new place that you're visiting for a short time, but not thinking about the impact you have on that location. Yeah. Even just being a tourist there. So, so I loved the idea of having to go one way because it meant that, and live there because I would treat the place differently than just going there, picking up some rocks and going home. And to be able to survive there, we have to be sustainable. I mean, it, it takes seven months to get from Earth to Mars. Wow. So it's the, the one way bit, no matter which way you're going, that's the fastest trip from one to the other. So resupply is pretty much impossible. So when we run out of stuff, we really are out. <laughs> there's no bunnings over the next crater i can't just go and pop out and get some more fertilizer it's not going to work we have to have all those systems already planned and uh, tested and in place that allow us to 
to eat sustainably, to ensure we can always have energy every day, warmth, um, security, all this sort of stuff are things that we take for granted every day to be able to turn yeah. on a light um, in our Western societies. We won't have that sort of security of. We need to really make sure that that's there. And that, with that necessity of having to survive without resupply, the, I think the creativity that will come out of that as well and the innovation uh, will assist us in developing some extraordinary solutions to our problems here on Earth today. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and I love that because, I mean, if we have to do that for Mars, well, great. We're not going to build it all on Mars and test it on Mars the first time. Of course not. We'll develop it and test it and scale it up and everything here on this planet first. So we have the potential to transform Earth, to become Earth 2.0 before we even go to the red planet, which is just for a sustainability expert, it's like, I can transform this planet by just wanting to go to Mars. It's brilliant. <laughs> exactly. Boom. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's really as extraordinary, uh, Diana. And uh, it's not something that I was overly familiar with up until recently. And I started sort of learning more about it. And, and um, you know, when we were communicating just a couple of weeks ago, you shared with me a podcast that you uh, had seen a guy, Professor Guy McPherson mm, on the yes. Performance Outliers podcast. Yes, and yes. Um, he's a, a client scientist guru. Mm. He's a professor. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he's predicted, I think the world's going to end in about eight years. Is that right? Yes, roughly. Uh, roughly in about you know, seven or so, eight years. It just it, We may have some slowdown on that when the current situation with COVID and everybody staying inside and a lot less industrial production. And so thus the effect on climate change, and we saw much clearer air uh, and less pollution from China uh, during some of their COVID lockdown. And we'll have the same in, and we saw the same in Europe too. Um, and so there will be some time for that to maybe slow down a little bit, but yeah, his, his prediction is about seven years or so when the earth is, well, not the earth, the earth is going to be fine. It's us as a species that won't be. That's right, yeah. Uh, that's, that's what his, his prediction is. And it, and it sounds pretty doomsday-ish, but there's a, even more extreme uh, people in the environmental science areas that are even more extreme that say, well, actually, we've only got about a year or two. Uh, even the IPCC are saying at their worst case scenario, it may be a decade or just over a decade. So we do have some you know, high-risk situation potentially in the next decade if we don't look to adapt and, and modify, how, not just our behaviour, but, well, we are going to have climate change. It's already happening. We've seen it. We have, you know, the bushfires here, floods elsewhere, there's hurricanes right now in the States, you know, a lot of deaths, this sort of stuff. It will happen. This isn't just, so this isn't just about the environment anymore. This becomes about human health and human survival. And I think it's a time when we can stop like just pointing a finger to go, oh, industrial this, that, or, oh, it's really just another ice age. Does it really matter why? <laughs> it's, it's happening. So, you know, we can change or we're going to be changed. It's very simple. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. It's not, it's not, I'm just having, I'm getting the wind up lights already. Just bear with me one Ooh. second. Okay. The, um, the fascinating thing about this, this, um, this podcast, um, apart from the blinking lights, this is like the blinking lights <laughs> of the, the spaceship that you'll be experiencing when you take <laughs> off. And I wonder if I do that, that it might uh, make things a little bit, this is a bit more um, 
this is a bit more uh, R.L. Stein. Um, <laughs> but um, the, uh, the yeah, the really interesting thing I found about that podcast, and and I did watch it the day after I was made redundant from my day job. So oh, it wasn't fantastic. it wasn't the greatest uh, thing to do. Um, Hashtag but, doomsday. But but what, what's the crossover? So it, like you're down to the last 100 globally to to mm. be shortlisted. How many people yes. are going? How many people are they taking? Yes. And um, what's the time frame? Can you get out of here before the world explodes? <laughs> before down the world explodes. <laughs> Well, according to um, Professor McPherson, the, the world won't explode, but us as a species will cease to exist because we won't have any of the the critical aspects of our habitat. And habitat is is what feeds us our and our source of energy and uh, and water and all that sort of stuff. Um, so by the time some of the critical species are gone, will we still be here? That's the the, the key thing. Um, and he predicts about seven years IPCC, so maybe ten, maybe a bit more. Mars One's project is, uh, the concept is to send the first crew in 2031. So we might be right on the edge of that then. See you later. <laughs> I'm good now. Um, but I think that with the current environment, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of delays in any activity in, in space flight travel, whether it's through what NASA's programs are, what European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, every single space agency is having delays in or shelving of, uh, of their major programs. So I'd be surprised if any mission, no matter whether it's 10 years out, is actually going to hit those sorts of timelines. They'll all move out another couple of years. Because every time you miss a timeline to go to Mars, it's, you can't go for another 26 months, roughly. Wow, Really? Yeah, it's only every roughly about two years that the planets get into the right sort of alignment in their different orbits around the sun so that it can be the fastest trajectory. That seven months requires the planets to be at exactly a particular position in their two different orbits. Otherwise, you know, you could miss each other and just have to go around again. Um, so, or it's going to be more inefficient fuel-wise or whatever. So it's much more efficient seven months, but they're only every 26 months between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that makes sense. And uh, well, I think one of the things that might expedite this whole process, time is that if they realise that you know <laughs> that the Earth is about to just come to a, a closure, <laughs> that they go let's let's inhabit another planet and keep life going and throw some money at it. like like John F. Kennedy did with the space program. He was like, we want to beat the Russians. Yeah, it's funny isn't it? It when there's a. Uh, when there's enough incentive to do something, when the the will, when the will for anything is strong, then you can make it happen if you've got the right sort of support system uh, and fuel, in, in essence. So you know, can you do it? What do you want to do, and how how do you make it happen? Um, so, you know, with Mars One's concept, they need they need funding. So they do have some funding. They've got private investors that have been supporting their activity over the last handful of years. Um, and they, they actually tried to get into the stock exchange too. Um, and so there's a miscon misconception out there that Mars One are, are bankrupts, but they're, they're not. Mars One Ventures, which is a company they bought on the stock exchange, um, it was called something else. They bought it on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange and they changed the name of that company to Mars One Ventures. And that went under... So that was just, but the parent company, Mars One, is still perfectly fine. So, uh, however, because okay. they've changed their name, everyone gets confused. They go, oh, Mars One has gone bankrupt. Like, no, it's not. That's really great clarification. I didn't know that they were no. listed on the stock exchange. And, and I suppose it makes sense to try and raise some capital because it's gonna, not going to be mm. cheap to send you to Mars. 
No, no, billions of dollars, billions of dollars. But, you know, cheaper than, uh, I think cheaper than a couple of years worth of television for the football. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, cheaper to send us to Mars than to have a couple of years worth of um, televised um, NRL or AFL. Wow. <laughs> Let's get our priorities right here, people. <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, one of the obvious questions that I'm sure our listeners or viewers might have is: Is there a small chance that you're going to Mars just to run away from a really, really annoying person and not colonise <laughs> a new planet? Well, um, you know, there are times when there's a few politicians that I do think questionably about and perhaps put them on a rocket to put on the other side of the planet. Um, however, <laughs> no, I'm not someone that's really into running away from things. I tend to step towards things. So uh, when I'm afraid of something, um, I take a big deep breath. I absolutely I get terrified sometimes, but I move towards it because it's something I, I need to approach. Like if I, when I'm exploring new ideas, for example, um, I'll get a sense for how I feel. And if I'm feeling a little bit fearful almost, then I do it. I have to, that, that, that's telling me I need to do this because I'm going to grow so much from this. It might be extraordinarily difficult. I may have many moments when I'm in a corner crying. However, <laughs> I know <laughs> that by persisting and really working hard, I'll take myself to another level. I'll become you know, the next best part of myself. And this is one of the things I really like about you, Diane. It's, um, there's, there's not a lot of people that I come in contact with that have a a mindset like yours you you're uh what what's known affectionately as a biohacker um mm. and i've i've spoken to a few people about this recently and the majority of people i when i ask them do you know what a biohacker is they don't know so what, mm. what is a biohacker in a really easy to describe um layman's terms if you yes yeah, so a biohacker generally is somebody that uses technology or uh, knowledge um, to, to alter aspects of their, their well-being, their, themselves, their physiology, to optimise it to a level that otherwise wouldn't be achievable. So we think about one example of biohacker can be, say, what's called a grinder. Now, a grinder, which is not, I'm not referring to a particular app, I'm referring <laughs> to, I'm referring to using um, a grinder as someone that might insert some technology into their body, like maybe a chip in their, their finger or whatever, and so that they can swipe to get through doors just by using their hands. So that's what a grinder would be. So they're optimizing what their body is capable of by using either technology or, or knowledge. Um, but these, these aren't new ideas. I mean, if we think about the cochlear implant, for example, you know, pacemakers, things like that, we've been using this sort of technology to optimize what we're capable of yeah. um, for quite some time. Um, I don't have anything implanted just yet. Uh, I'm not averse to the concept at all of um, becoming what's called post-human is the other sort of level of grinding. Uh, I'm, I'm at the moment doing a lot of more stuff around the physiology and health and, and playing with extra hacks that aren't more common. So, um, for example, might use um, red light therapy or um, cryogenics or other things like that, so cryotherapy. So I'll really sort of explore a few different things that I can take things to a level that I can't get normally just by like diet and exercise, for example. And um, look, it's a fascinating area and something that I've been dabbling in as well from time to time. And I suppose what's some of the, the more interesting biohacking stunts that you've, that you've attempted and <laughs> have been surprised or not surprised from the, uh, from the response? 
for the outcomes? Um, look, I think some of the, the stuff that we can all do at home that you know, we, we, we hear about, we think diet and exercise, diet and exercise, and we kind of just become something that washes over us and we think, oh, yeah, I'll eat healthy or, or whatever. But when I started to really explore that in a way that could optimise what I was capable of, I was incredibly surprised by some of the outcomes. Like, for example, by removing um, sugars and carbohydrates from my diet. I first started doing it back in um, 2014, I think it is. Yeah, about, about six years ago. Um, I went onto the ketogenic diet or low carb first and then really pretty much went keto almost straight away. And other than having two weeks of hell of the transition of basically trying to get over sugar, the keto um, flu, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I think, what am I doing? But then after that, just the miracle. Um, now, the, one of the, the amazing things that I experienced was I had zero period pain. Now, this may not be something that many of your gentlemen that might listen to this would care too much about unless their partners get it. It's a perfectly 50-50 uh, <laughs> split as far as we're concerned. Awesome, awesome. Or 48, well, 48 and the 4% that uh, the, the, non, the non-gendered uh, pronouns. Exactly. We're very diverse here. Or anybody that may uh, <laughs> experience menstruation. Uh, I, I just had the, the first time ever like a, a pain-free period and I thought, oh my God, is this what life could be like? <laughs> Who knew? I just had to stop sugar to do that. Um, so some of the small, tiny little things of taking out things that harm. And that's, I guess for me, as part of my process is when I look at something I want to try and achieve, like if I want to achieve um, greater cognitive function or improve my vision or increase my bone mass or whatever it's been, some of the, the different um, experiments I've been doing over the, the years, I first, when I first analyze what the issue is, what, the, what I'm trying to solve, I have a look at, am I doing something that actually causes harm first? If I am, it's, why don't we do something mad like stop it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. Why, why keep taking other pills when I could just stop that thing and then I don't even need to take pills? You know, it saves time, saves effort, improves all outcomes. So, so one of them was, yeah, stopping the sugar. Uh, and it was just amazing. I know you're involved with um, sugar by half as well is that right is that what it's called yeah correct it's the uh well it's the sugar reduction initiative with its yeah, very cleverly is. branded name run yeah, by great. um professor peter bruckner the sports medicine um he's a professor uh and yeah, been involved yeah. with elite sport for a long time and i'm very privileged to be a part of that um for for the meantime while everything's in shutdown lockdown um a lot of that stuff will be put on um hiatus but a very, very important and very close to my own heart as well. You know, in our conversations, you and I, um, have, well, we similar, follow a similar sort of uh, eating regime. I've adopted this largely mm. animal protein-based, like a yes. paleolithic ketogenic style diet yeah. and had some wonderful, wonderful success with regards to curing an, an incurable autoimmune disease in the form of mm. GERD, like a reflux disorder. Oh, fantastic. And... You know, after being told by many, many medical professionals that what I had was, you know, a genetic disorder and there was nothing I could do about it, and yada, yada, yada. And then I suppose when you, when you have some success with that, you start then questioning, you know, what mm. else are they wrong about? And exactly. it sort of, you end up down this rabbit hole. And Because I know one of the things that you're trying to figure out right now is mm. the, the, the seven months in space depletes mm. your bone 
mass by Correct. the same amount as what you would experience going through a full menopause, something along that's those lines. Right. Is that right? Yeah. So that's right. Usually a woman going through menopause over about three to five years, that it's, it's, it's quite a pro protracted process for, for women. Um, and it's, it's something where they can lose about 20% of their bone mass. Um, and astronauts tend to lose about the same amount in, when they spend six months in space. So just, just six months and you'll have osteoporotic bones, essentially. Wow. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and it, that's why one of the reasons that astronauts have to exercise for about two and a half hours a day, a day. Imagine doing that for six months, like two and a half every single day. I mean, Laban, you and I have both done a lot of distance running. You know, imagine if you have to do a two and a half hour run every day, zero rest days, you know, and in that as well, you're running, but you're also doing resistance training and, you know, on the bike. And so it's, it's pretty intense. And so I thought if I'm going to go to Mars, okay, I'll be going seven months in zero gravity where this is a risk. Yeah. If I don't exercise that excessively. And even then that exercise doesn't prevent them losing mass. They still end up losing sometimes about 3% of their bone mass. So it still happens. You can't, it's almost impossible to maintain bone mass in space. Um, and then you go to Mars, Mars, okay, it has got gravity and that's the key there. So having some gravity on earth, we have gravity. And so thus in the amount of gravity we have allows us to have, we've all heard of the term weight bearing exercise. And that's what helps give our bones enough signal to continue to get strong or maintain their strength. Usually, of course, if we're less active and things like that, and there's a lot of other reasons why we might have problems. Um, but then on Mars, the gravity is about a third of Earth's. And so the risk is still there that we might have to exercise a lot every day, like yeah. not necessarily two and a half hours, but a minimum an hour, hour and a half. We don't know yet because no one's been to Mars yet. We don't have any data of any humans on Mars. So all we're doing at the moment is modeling and doing things called bed rest exercise um, or experiments where in hospitals, they might put a whole lot of subjects in bed to do nothing on, in a particular angle on the bed to try and simulate having the same sort of gravity on their bones. Uh, and it's, it's not the same. It's not the same as if you're physically in a place doing that work. So whoever gets to go first to Mars, and I'm hoping I'm one of those who gets to do it because I love an experiment, um, <laughs> we will be the first people to try this stuff to work out how we can do this. But I've started working on that already. It's like, well, why wait? when I can actually prevent. That's the key. If I, th I thought, if I can put some bone in the bank, like if I can put some there now, I've got something there that I can afford to lose if I do lose any at all. So, so that's what I've been working on for the last few years because it's, it's a slow process. You can't just you know, um, plug something in and turn it on and ta-da, I've increased my bone mass overnight. It doesn't work like that. It's a very slow process because every day your bones both build and break down. It's a cycle that goes on. Um, so you need to work with that cycle in a way that increases the build and, you know, reduces how much goes, goes out the door. Um, so that's what I've been doing through lots of different biohacks, changing aspects of, of, of what I eat, um, when I eat, uh, the timing of things makes a difference to exercise definitely yeah. makes a huge difference and is adding other, other more unusual hacks in, um, such as, you know, the cryotherapy, stuff like that. Yeah. It's really interesting, um, we've, and we spoke about this offline a couple of weeks ago as well. In, in the process of my health journey, I was able to lose, uh, it was a, it's been about up to 22 kilos of actual body That's fat. That's phenomenal. Weight. And right, and then, but in the pro, and this was all verified through 
DEXA scan and yes, through, yes. through the biometric scales and, and the, even the Fitbit scales that have been used mm. daily. So obviously the DEX is the gold standard. And, yes. I, and this is an N equals one only experiment mm. at this point, but I found this interesting and it might be something that they look at later on. But when you, like in that whole process, I've actually mm -hmm. added on about half a kilo of skeletal bone density. Now my uptake in running has increased throughout that period. Mm -hmm. um, and that will certainly help. But from the people that I've spoken to, they said it's an extraordinary number if it is correct and if mm. assuming it is accurate. But yet one of the other things I found out recently is that cricketers and fast bowlers in particular have, um, because of their bowling action, for those who don't know cricket, get online and have a look. It's a fascinating game. And uh, it, the, the amount of strength that the bowlers have and the strength of the bone because of the force, mm -hmm. and I think it's, I could be yep. wrong, this is six, 16, 17 times body weight or six or seven times it's body weight. It's quite phenomenal. Mm. Going through the front leg. Yes. You're a cricketer. Yes, I am. And I used to bowl as well. So I've, I've had dexes done on both my ankles. I can tell you. So, you know, one of them is significantly different than the other. Significantly. Wow. Because really? There yeah, you go. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I've had ex just focused on the ankle to see um, ex and then track that over time as well to see with the activity I'm doing, am I making sure I'm not losing mass? Because usually when you pass the age of 30, um, that's our peak generally that we can't according to the specialists you don't build any more bone than that that's your max um i i think <laughs> no uh <Next>. me. <laughs> exactly so um so from that you know we've got this situation where normally uh, what usually happens to people is that it declines <laughs> by about one percent same thing with yeah. um so not just bone mass it's usually muscle mass and also what people forget about is our balance our proprioception actually alters by about a percentage point as well so it actually we get which is why a fall can be a huge problem for, for older people um, but yeah so the key for me is you know because i'm 50 so it's it's about you not just fantastic by the way thank you um so it's not just about building but it's also about just making sure i don't you know i'm not on that angle i want to be at least flat line but growth is usually key. So I, I try and grow as much as possible. And I've been, I've been growing, um, so about 1%. So that's been the, the tracking over the last couple of years. And we've got, well, supposed to be having another DEXA next month. Um, but whether that's going to be possible with what's going on with COVID. And I'm not sure the hospital may have other priorities and having me coming in and lying, you know, under their machine, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, look, one of the interesting things is, is because because of my scenario being an N equals one only at this point is mm. the the medication that I was on, uh, omeprazole or Somac, um, which is a proton mm. pump inhibitor, stops the stomach producing acid. Mm. And one of the major side effects are uh, iron malabsorption, B12 malabsorption, but also mm. calcium. And ah. and I wonder whether the removal of that drug, which I was on daily for 17 years, has allowed my body to start reabsorbing calcium that it may have been leaching because it wasn't getting mm. it from my nutrition and has yeah. my body then stabilized. So that, that's one really fascinating way of looking at it. Um, mm. And the other thing is, you know, like, is it the diet? Like my diet, similar to yours, I mm. basically eliminated plants out of it nearly two years yeah. ago. Mm. And here comes the scurvy. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and have really developed into a, 
I'm going to say elite level runner um, mm -hmm. through the ability to get up pretty much every single day, having recovered really well because I sleep really yeah. well and, and all of the, 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 the contributing factors that you need in order yeah. to be able to get good at something, right? And for me, running's my therapy. My running is very cathartic. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be a catabolic um, yeah. as well, as in a muscle burning. And, and I've had the opposite effect. I've put on all this muscle for fun and I really contribute it to the diet. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, the number, and I'm sure you've probably seen so many um, reports of uh, of guys and, and women, but mostly guys, uh, when they go on to a, a very high protein diet, such as the a, um, a, you know a carnivorous or protein uh, animal protein based diet, that dramatic changes in body composition, um, dramatic increases in in muscle mass in particular. Um, some women, but women, the body is a little bit different with it. it does happen, but slightly different hormones. Testosterone is not quite as big. <laughs> Well, I think um, it, it, testosterone is a really another really interesting one. I've mm. certainly noticed that some of the things that testosterone improve, to, mm. talk about libido, sexual function, oh, yeah, sure. aggressiveness, but not violence, mm, um, mm. assertiveness, I think is probably a better mm, way of yeah, doing yeah. it, and uh, being more calm under pressure. Mm. Um, have been certain things that I've noticed that have gone up in spades. And, yeah. and I've become more primal, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, mm. And uh, it's a really wonderful side effect of everything. And, and my partner, uh, Anna, is a female, and she eats largely what I eat for the last 12 months. She's noticed uh, she's put on some muscle. She was in a very good physical shape. Like, she's got a visible eight-pack. Um, mm. but that has kind of enhanced really. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. It'd be really fascinating to see where they take this research um, as more and more people sort of start getting involved and trying to sort of take control of their health, um, mm. you know, with, with what's been going on with this whole COVID thing. Um, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll make people look at their health a little bit more and realize that it, the more robust that we can make ourselves, the less vulnerable to these other things. And, you know, like if we get wiped out in eight years, then we may as well make the most of the next eight years, you know. Let's exactly. I want to be in my prime for all of that. Absolutely. hundred percent. And if we don't have to let things such as our current situation stop us from, from achieving what we want to. I mean, you can go out for a run pretty safely because it's something you can do by yourself and you can do it at a time of the day that, you know, you know there's not going to be too many people around or whatever. These are the choices that you're able to make and we're fortunate for that. Yeah. Um, for myself as well, when I do some of my, um, my biohacking work that I do for my bone strength, um, I can do that in a room that doesn't have to be any bigger than my bathroom necessarily. Like some of the, the ways I integrate um, aspects of um, isometric holds and um, time under load and um, so real long, slow lift type stuff. So some of um, Dr. Doug McGuff's body by science uh, approach, like really slow, everything under tension. Um, and for extreme muscle fatigue, the the neuromuscular um, signaling that occurs there and the strength um, that comes with that is is quite dramatic for the little amount of perceived effort that you need to put in. Um, so that's what you can do in a small space because I'm not going to sit here and wait for maybe a door to open up for me to finally get to a gym again later. It's like, well, I don't have to. I can do something here. What can I do? I think it's the the thing that we should always ask ourselves. Well, I can't do this, but what can I do? We don't have to be limited. 
Couldn't agree any more if I tried, Diane. It's, it's, if people come out the other side of this lockdown fatter and slower than what they were <laughs> at the start, you've really you've squandered what was a really great opportunity. Um, <laughs> you know, far from, far from, from me to judge. Um, that's just what I would do. And I've, and I've really been making the use of it. I really have been enjoying... Um, mm. I've been running more, more than I would. And, and mm. off the back of that, I've decided to set some really outlandish goals physically awesome and um and i'm on track i'm on track so i won't reveal what they are just yet um but um (laughs) that that can be for another podcast but um i'm i'm really relishing the whole environment and it's uh it's a blessing to be trapped in a place with those that you love (laughs) and you know if you're with someone that you don't love then maybe it's time to reassess what's going (laughs) on well and look honestly you know we we may be fortunate enough to be in environments where where we do have security we have a roof over our head food in the fridge and and people that care for us and some people don't have such safety which you know i know some friends who have made sure that their offices are still able to be open so that people can go to work if that's one of their few safe moments of the day so um you know i'm very conscious of my you know that gift i have and i'm grateful for that um, but one of the other things I'm grateful for, and you, you touch on there about, you know, this is an opportunity. And, and I, was, I was on a, um, a, like a video event last week and I talked about something called the spotlight effect. And uh, for, for those in psychology um, that aren't aware or those that are aware, psychology talks about something called the spotlight effect. And the spotlight effect is when we think people are watching us, and we're doing something like we think everybody's watching you. Like everyone's looking at Laban with his new shirt on. Everybody's looking at him. Look at him. Look. But in reality, hardly anyone has even noticed you've been in the room. And so, it's, you know, so, but we, we have this thing, especially if we're doing something that's a little bit different for us. If we're deciding to, we, we're going to walk into the room and maybe it's a meet. Normally you'd be going into a meeting and what if you decided to, to wear a t-shirt and shorts and something, you know, your t-shirt said safe Ferris or something like that. You know, you'd really look out of place. It might be a bit fun, but you'd feel a bit awkward. And, yeah. and, but you know, you, at that point, you think you're, even more people are watching you than ever because you're under the extreme spotlight because you're doing something that's socially not normal at that moment. What we have now is a real opportunity. We've got so much time out of the spotlight. So this whole thing with, you know, COVID and being locked down, we're not in front of our colleagues at work. We're not out there in, in our social groups out in society. We're actually a lot of it ourselves or with our partners or our families or whatever the situation is in our home life we've got a lot more time to just try something new because who's going to watch us who's going to see us only us we're the only ones that have to know oh that didn't work i'll try it that way next time you know so it really gives you a chance to be a bit more fearless and to try something different i love that about right now it's like it's a time to be fearless yeah you're right and um a great quote that i heard a little while ago was um it's none of your business what, <laughs> what people think of you. It's none of your business what other people think of you. And, and I, I love that. And as part of my transition, again, um, me, I used to, validate, used to seek validation from people mm. a lot in what I used to do through sort of self-deprecating humor and mm. just, just demeaning myself. And I don't do that anymore. And yeah. now I go the other way and I'm like, when I go for my runs, for example, um, I will deliberately run with no shirt on, not, mm. not to show off, but to acclimatize and 
So yeah. that by the time winter rolls around and it gets to one or two degrees, it doesn't get much colder than that in Melbourne here. But it's having a really profound effect on the way that I interpret temperature now. And and mm-hmm. and when it's thirteen or fourteen degrees, people are rugged up, and I'm like, I'm I don't notice the stuff. Yeah. And the the self conscious person that might worry about what people think could never go out and and not wear a shirt um, mm. when they run. And there's this very small percentage of the running population, like there might be one or two. It's only men, obviously. It would probably seem a little bit crazy if there was a woman running around topless. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, I'm sure if that's legal, like, go for it. But um, it, that's just one little thing that I found to be really interesting for my own self-development. And it's made me more uh, confident in other areas of my life. And yeah. so my, my question for you, Don, would be, Someone at home is watching this. They mm-hmm. they are in a one bedroom apartment. Their family's interstate yep. or overseas. They are a hundred pounds or fifty kilos mm-hmm. overweight. They are really unhappy with their existence right now because they mm. have no goals. They're directionless. They they do things that harm them. You know they they either drink too much or they smoke or they do drugs or whatever whatever it might be or play video games too much. What would be some really great tips or advice that you would give that person to really spark them into gear yeah it's it's a challenge especially if you're living by yourself in those sort of situations because it um you know there are people who may spiral down to a place of quite great darkness and negativity for themselves i could really imagine that having had friends um over the years who've been you know gone through depression and all sorts of um, conditions and um, and so i can imagine the current situation could be quite devastating for, for many people um, it's and it's hard to pull yourself out of that so I often find when you are entrapped in a spiral and I've had challenges with mental health over the years too and it's really difficult to pick yourself in that spiral sometimes yeah but it's good to learn what starts to be the triggers and I found for myself meditation was helpful like I've learned to to find myself um, and understand what those triggers are for things, and so I'm much more comfortable with those. And I can sit, I can sit with the moments of joy and discomfort at the same time. Like know that everything's going to be okay, even if that normally makes me upset, etc. Um, so, so I would strongly, you know, encourage people to find maybe some apps because it's often helpful to learn meditation through someone else guiding you through it. And there's so many apps and on YouTube and all sorts of stuff that will take you through those sorts of things. And it can yeah. be really calm. It can be so calming as well. It could be those few minutes of calm that you might get in your brain for the day, which is just a gift. Um, and then from there, once again, you know, it's hard to take some of these steps alone sometimes. Uh, and so that's why the, the world of podcasting, there are so many people who can teach you so much and help you take those first steps. And that's where I would, and I did over the years, I've, I've gone to podcasts and then that's given me some ideas and, oh, I might try that or oh, I've never heard of that before. What's the point of that? Why would I do that? And it's made me curious. And then I get online and research stuff. So, so perhaps there's a, a community of thought or Facebook groups or, or ways of someone um, connecting with, with information or other people that might be wanting to start something new as well. Because everyone's something new might be different. Yeah, you can't assume it'll be. Oh, I need to get off the couch and walk around the block. I mean, when I first started learning to run before you know, many years before I ran um, marathons for ultra whatever, uh, I I couldn't run from one end of the block to the other. 
you know, and it's, it's remarkable to, you know, to look back now, you and I have done so much running over the years to think, wow, I remember that journey. I had to run from one, I used to run around the block, but I'd do it to start off with. I'd run from one driveway to the next driveway and then I'd walk to the next driveway and then I'd run to the next driveway and then I'd walk to the next driveway. And I did that like for a week. I did that a couple of nights a week. And then I'd start to run two driveways lengths and walk one. And then, and just gradually just a tiny bit more, a tiny bit more. And it's amazing how just that reinforcement that, oh, I can do this. Like by doing the same thing a few times first is really important. You know, trying to scale it up straight away, it can be a, an invitation for failure for some people. Yeah. But reinforcing something, it, it brings about habituation. You know, that whole, as soon as you can habituate something, as long as habituation is regular practice of something. So, and if you do it often enough, it becomes just habit. And it's like, oh, I know how to do this. And like you said about yourself, you start to become more confident in other things in your life because you've done something regularly that is a small win for you. It's like, oh, but a big win at the same time. So, and then you can build on it. Beautiful. And uh, I think um, it sounds like there's a very similar journey in terms of the, at least the physical progress. I was in the mm. same boat. I, 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 my very, I only started running the last couple of years. And, yep. you know, you're an ultra marathon runner. You completed actually mm. one of the same races that I entered in at different years, I think, the mm. Tan 50K, which is yep. 13 laps of the beautiful botanical <laughs> gardens up Gorgeous. Anderson Hill, if anyone knows it. Uh, <laughs> they, um, it's quite a monotonous. Like the body. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, I've actually got a funny story about my, my ultra marathon, um, yeah. if you'd you care to indulge me. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. I, um, before I met my wonderful partner, Anna, who I've been with for a year and a half, I had started dating this girl whose name I'll, I'll leave out. Um, we'd been going together for a week and mm-hmm. we'd be, but we'd been on about five dates. We kind of had this instant sort of chemistry and just hit it off really, really quickly. And uh, it was all, all, all guns blazing. And um, I was running the Tan Ultra the Sunday morning. And we're, so we'd been going, or maybe a week and a half we'd been going out. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, hey, if you like, you know, come down and watch. And she's like, well, look, I'm moving house, but if I can get down there, I'll, uh, I'll come and say, some, come and say good day. Yeah, and nice. and I said, well, look, I'm just going to be doing laps of this thing, so you'll find yeah. me, right? <laughs> and uh, so fast forward to the day, and um, let's call her Sarah because it's not Sarah. And um, <laughs> fast forward to the day, I'm like uh, 41 kilometers in to my 50k run, and yeah. I'm starting to fatigue pretty mm. heavily at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, the weather it was a bit overcast and a bit dreary and stuff. But um, most people were in pretty good moods and, and there was this lady, a volunteer who was handing out lollies and I was doing my, my fat adapted run. I was just um, eating my uh, cheese and all this other stuff. And so I politely declined and I saw her a couple of times. And um, as I came around for like the, what must be about the, the 11th lap or something, I saw Sarah. And I went and she was standing next to the, to the girl who was handing out the lollies. And I just, I was running and I just went up to her and I put my arms around her and I kissed her on the lips. And, and then as I pulled, this woman sort of recoiled in horror and it wasn't her. And, 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 and uh, if for anyone that's ever done any ultra running, like or distance running, you can hallucinate a little bit. 
And 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 uh, and I said, oh my god, I'm so sorry because I realised immediately, like this woman looked nothing like Sarah, <laughs> nothing like her at all. She might have been a similar age, but they, there was no there was no physical comparison. <laughs> they were the same skin colour. It was about the only similarity. <laughs> and and so I've just I've just sexually assaulted this poor woman on on the streets of Melbourne. <laughs> and um, and I was apologising profusely, but like. I just, I still, I still had to like, you had to finish run your run. race. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and the girl handing out the lollies was cracking up laughing. So I thought, we've got a, an ally there. And I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. And sort of waved and and um and and kept running. And because what else could I do, right? Oh, yeah. And anyway, so I, I I had my earphones. I had my phone with me, and I rang my friend Sam. I was like, oh my god, I just kissed this woman without her permission. I'm going to go to jail. Like, I'm going to come around the other side. Oh There'll be the, the, the divvy van waiting for me. And I, I really started to freak out. Like, and you combine this with, at this point, um, probably four and a half hours of running nonstop. Yeah, so yeah. I'm fatiguing, I'm guilt-ridden, like I'm hallucinating, obviously, at times. And, and uh, Sam's trying to calm me down. And anyway, so I get off the phone, I'm coming around and, and I'm coming back to the spot to where I saw this woman. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as I get closer, uh, she comes into view, and and then I, I then I come within earshot, and she she's got a smile on her face. She says, "That kiss was an eight out of ten. I expect the next one to be a ten out of ten. <laughs> and I was just like, "Oh my god! Thank you so much for not pressing charges." <laughs> and Sarah, the girl I was seeing, turned up post race. She wasn't even there. <laughs> oh how funny oh my gosh genuine mistake <laughs> genuine mistake what a wonderful wow. wonderful individual she was not to press charges and you know one of those <laughs> funny things that happen but um yeah case yeah. of mistaken identity yeah right. have you had anything similar happen <laughs> no not quite no, I haven't gone up and kissed random strangers I think most of us I think most of us have had experiences where we've you know, thought somebody was somebody else, like, hello, blah, blah. Oh, oh my God, I wasn't talking to you. No, no, it was someone else. Uh, I think most of us have had that at some stage or other. Um, I can't think of anything that's even vaguely, uh, <laughs> it's hilarious, that I'm afraid. I think it must have been no. some kind of face blindness, <laughs> sort of temporary face blindness thing that I was going through. Yeah, it's. I mean, there is something about, you know, when you're doing those sorts of distance runs, though, that um, your mind does go to a different place, though, too, and, and and you can have a fatigue, but it can also take you beyond fatigue. For, for me, like I've found some of the training, it doesn't mean I haven't had fatigue. Absolutely had fatigue. Um, but <laughs> one, of, one of my training runs beforehand, um, I was in London, and um, so I was running. I was running a marathon, as you know, as you do with your warm up towards the ultra. You end up running a few marathons just as your training runs. Yeah. And I was running. I was running a marathon in London. Uh, and I just, and I was just having such a great time, and I was just just running along the streets, and here and I was, I wasn't lost. I knew where I was, but it was just like, I just wanted to keep going. And it, and I think it must be like when, you know, I, I've heard that when astronauts get to do an EVA when they leave, get to leave the space station, actually float outside the space station to do stuff. There's a point at which they don't want to come back in. <laughs> they, wow. yeah, yeah. They, seriously, there's a point at which um, they're so overawed by everything they're overwhelmed by this incredible beauty and the experience of being and seeing what they're 
I mean, I, I cannot fathom the depth of those that moment. Um, but there's some moments we have in life. Thinking about it, sometimes you're just so in flow. And I think when people talk about flow, they they know those moments when they've just been writing and and just everything is just almost like a moment of perfection that lasts forever, but might only be 15 minutes or something. Yeah. Um, and that sort of felt like that day when I was just running on London. I, I felt like I could run for hundreds of kilometres that day. I didn't. I realised oh, I better go home. <laughs> I, think, I think I ran about uh, 46 or something Ks that day. But anyway, um, well, I just, I just got away. Time just got away with me. And I thought, oh, I better go home and eat something, I guess. But like you, I, was, I, don't tend, I wasn't doing it with food. So... But you don't need it. It's overrated. Food's yeah, overrated. Misunderstood. Oh, food's, well, no, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, food's kind of handy. Um, yeah, so, but that whole thing, like, that experience of, of seeing Earth, that's one of the things that I would, you know, if I, if I do get to go to space, the concept of being able to observe our planet from outer space, they, 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 they call this thing the overview effect. Um, when astronauts look back on Earth, and they see this this tiny, thin, thin line that circumnavigates our planet, and that's our atmosphere. And it's as it's as thin as a, a rubber band around a, a basketball. Like it's that sort of you know the, the ratios. And they come back just almost evangelists for the environment and to protect what we have because they see how fragile this is. Wow. Uh, and so and so. Yeah, you know, and I've been lucky enough to meet a number of astronauts who've been on the space station and one man who's actually walked on the moon, the 10th man to walk on the moon, uh, and all of them, all of them have talked about this moment and quite a few of them have come back and had quite a religious uh, change in their life too. It's quite fascinating how it just um, puts them at a, a very different place from a spiritual perspective too. So um, maybe there's something about pulling ourselves out of the detail, pull ourselves out of this step out of our own spotlight and maybe we can have a different view of our own selves and maybe feel a stronger love and acceptance of who we are as a quite a remarkable, beautiful being. And that's one of the things I you know, would like to try and achieve for myself personally on this planet. Um, but definitely if I get to go to space from that one. I've got a funny feeling you're going to get your wish, Diane. <laughs> uh, there's just something about you. Um, I kind of feel a bit like Conan O'Brien I watched the, a YouTube Conan O'Brien the other day when he interviewed Donald Trump uh, oh. when he was when he was on The Apprentice, and it was only a couple of years later I think he ran for president and became president. But I kind of get that similar feeling with you. But um, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by space travel. I'm fascinated by like the, the sci-fi movies, you know, Interstellar, and a lot of those movies are absolutely mm -hmm. my, my my most favorite things. And and um, I, it's on my bucket list. I, I would I'm yeah. gonna go space. It'll be available awesome. at some point. And, oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think I'll fit in your carry-on. Uh, <laughs> no, it's six. Uh, it's about $6,000 per kilogram to send anything to space. So, um, yeah, we pack light. <laughs> do, do, um, I suppose that given the funding side of things, do mm. they pay you a salary up until when they send you to Mars and then they're like, we don't have to pay you shit? <laughs> like, how does that work? Like, um, Well... I mean, all of the astronauts for the space agencies get paid a salary even when they're obviously on mission, but they do come back to Earth, of course. Um, I mean, Mars One's concept to go one way and leave us there and good luck to you all, it's a little bit different. However, 
they also respect the fact that we may all be in different life circumstances at that time when we get to go. If I'm lucky yeah. enough to be chosen, yeah, absolutely. During the training program, I would be full-time salary astronaut, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then from the day I get in a rocket and leave, I'd also still be full-time salary as an astronaut because I may have, maybe I'm supporting my aging parents in a nursing home. Maybe I have yeah, yeah. a mortgage to still pay. Maybe the, who knows what my responsibilities may still be to, to this planet before I go to another one. And it's kind of irresponsible to just, you know, cut those ties completely, although it sounds attractive at times. <laughs> oh, Amex. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm yeah. really sorry. You're not going to believe where I am right now. Yeah. Totally Can you forgot. send me the bill? <laughs> just send me the bill. My postal address is... <laughs> it's, um, it's really fun to think about, Diane. I, um, I do. I, I get a real thrill just thinking on your behalf. So it must be bloody exciting being in your situation. This Mars was this Mars one candidate role is not the only thing mm. we do as we know. Um, mm. you're involved with some philanthropic stuff, which I'd love to mm. you know, get your ideas, get your thoughts on as well. What, what are the main areas that you're involved in? What do you do? Um, so from the philanthropy side of stuff, um, I've been on the board of a number of not-for-profits over the years. It's currently a, um, I'm on the board of one specific not-for-profit. Uh, it's called the Open Food Network. And, and, and they're extraordinary. They're so busy at the moment during COVID. Um, the Open Food Network connects eaters and growers. And when we're in a situation at the moment where our food supply is coming from really in Australia, two main providers, supermarket A and supermarket B, where you've got 80% of the market, um, the duopoly does make it difficult for sometimes for the small growers out there to have access to market. Uh, and particularly when at the moment, it's not always easy to get a farmer's market anymore. We can't gather and go to these sorts of things. So organisations such as the Open Food Network essentially create like buying groups and small co-ops and stuff like that using um, open source software programs to allow this to occur. Uh, and we're actually global. It's not just, just we started off in Australia, but we're now um, in Ireland, in uh, I think we're in Canada, France, um, South Africa now. Um, so we've become a worldwide sort of organisation or not-for-profit um, enterprise uh, to ensure that there's a fair food available for people. Uh, and it's, it's a phenomenal option. And I think that it's just seeing it at the moment with COVID, many more people are getting access to food that our local guys and girls grow. It's smaller scale. It's fantastic. Food miles make a difference and it's nice to support your local guy. Yeah. So I do that. Um, but it's just a part of my passion towards sustainability and, and food systems and food waste. And that that's my PhD, which I'm finishing this year. I will be Dr. Dye. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> been a long time part-time Dr. McGrath <laughs> yes uh, don't ask me to operate on you however <laughs> I, will, I will tell you that you probably left a lot of carbs on that plate um so I've looked at food waste in the hospitality sector you've got to have life. him on there to leave him on there <laughs> <laughs> it's true well you know you see what the at the average you know recommended dietary requirements etc uh end up having about two-thirds of the plate being carbohydrates uh, you know, roughly similar proportions of, of fat to uh, to protein when it comes to calories. Yeah. Uh, so, but in volume, obviously more protein than, than fat. Uh, but that's, but what people waste is very different. They waste more carbohydrate than they do the other two. So it's, you know, not unusual. It's a plate filler and much less nutrient dense. I think from an evolutionary perspective, our body knows 
what it's going to not just enjoy, but get better nutritional value from. Uh, and after a while, don't you get sick of spinach? <laughs> Popeye certainly did. <laughs> oh, no, it's actually, it's not, it, yes, it's veggie. I mean, in the household, we waste more fresh fruit and veg than anything else. Um, but when we go out to dine, it's more processed carbohydrates. So the bread basket, the pasta, rice, you know, the side dish of rice that you get with the Chinese or, or it's Thai food or whatever. Um, that's, they're the most common things that are left on plates. Chips, you know, French fries, the potatoes, gosh, half, only half of all potatoes grown for human consumption are ever eaten. Half. Wow. So if you imagine how much land we clear to plant things that are never eaten. Half. How many ecosystems have we destroyed because we really didn't need to supersize those fries? I could wow. have had a small fries. You know, it's phenomenal. We've, and, and, and people, people who talk about the environmental impact of different sorts of diets don't think about the waste aspect, aspect of stuff. There's very little waste in um, protein or fat-based diets uh, when it comes to food waste. Um, there's an exceptional amount of waste from plant-based diets, um, both from the production of them because uh, of how much land is cleared and fertiliser is needed and things like that. Uh, and then, of course, you know how much mass of it there is that ends up going to waste. So um, it's not a simple story of cow's fart. There's a bit more to it than, than that. Oh, well, yeah, look, this is something that's really close to my home as well, Diana. And mm. part of... Um, Part of my whole journey is that when I studied, you know, and I've, I've spent close to, to 30 hours a week for really the last probably four or five years reading mm -hmm. self-development, nutritional, but also like the bioavailability side of things, the mm. environmental, that type of thing as well. Trying to yeah. immerse myself in non-mainstream um, non information mm. in conjunction yeah. with all the other stuff. And I yeah, can attest yeah. my, the waste that I used to have, and, and this is someone who trained as a chef. I spent a year and a half uh, working in, in mm, New Zealand right. as, a, as a, an apprentice chef. And the amount of, we, when we used to do conferences for up to 950 people in Christchurch, yeah, right. which wow. was the biggest the venue there, and the amount of food that would be thrown out at the end of the day was heartbreaking. Mm. And having particularly the last two years eliminated close to probably 99% of what I eat is just animal protein. Mm. I don't throw out anything. It's because the yeah. steak that you buy or the mince that you buy is, is well, it's expensive in comparison to, you know, mm. spring onions or whatever. And yep. you can, you can cook it and then reuse it. And yes. I made a bone broth the other day and I put some tea bones from an eaten T-bone steak mm. that I froze probably four months ago in the fridge, in the freezer. Yeah, yeah. And made a beautiful bone broth out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some chuck steak that was frozen there for a couple of months. And normally that kind of thing would be thrown out. But like, mm. um, so I, that's something that I'm really interested in. I'm really glad that you brought it up as well. I think the, the, the sustainability of like throwing away half of all potatoes, like, like what land does that equate to? How much of a carbon footprint does that attribute to like what could farmers be doing with their time better if oh. they weren't growing potatoes like there's well, how much money would they save as well how much fertilizer would they not need to to purchase what about the water that they don't need to you know, get onto the water market in australia i mean australia you know water is such a scarce resource you know they trade farmers trade 
it costs them money to access water. It's not yeah. just, oh, I can tap into the river. Um, so this, and the, the topsoil it's lost as well. Like every time you, every time you, you plow, it depletes the, the quality of the soil. It's going to be damaged. So, you know, planting each year, new potatoes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's atrocious. So what can we do? What can we do? What someone's going, watching this going, Oh my God. Well, firstly, the earth's ending <laughs> in eight years. Diane's off to Mars anyway, so she doesn't care. So but yeah, like, don't but, care. But like, what? See, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't want to be. A, no, no, no. Um, no. <laughs> what, what do we? What do we do? What? what what's the yep. simple fix? If you were God and president, you're pretty cool, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, hell. Oh, Lord Almighty. Oh, Diane. Um, <laughs> in a really quick synopsis, what? What can we do? Look, it can be really simple. Most people have no clue that they're wasting things. They don't realise that it's occurring. Like in our little um, worlds that we all have that are quite different and unique, what you might consider as food even might be different to me. You know, uh, for example, um, avocados. Many people don't realise that 70% of the antioxidants in avocado are in the seed. So most people throw out the seed um, because we don't eat the seed, right? It's, it's not edible. That's not true. In Mexican traditional dishes, the seed is dried and ground up and used in, um, in their, their ground meat dishes as well because um, it, it, it's just part of their food system. Did not know that. Uh, so, Did not know that. <laughs> oh, I'm full of useless bits of information like that. <laughs> no, actually it started, uh, I play, used to play a game with myself when I first started in the food waste area um, you know, years ago now um, when I'd started to essentially watch my waste. I would, and that's why I call my PhD, Wash My Waste, because that's where it starts. If we can start paying attention to something, we see, we can actually identify what our problem is and can do something about it. So I started to look, when I'd make my dinner, I'd look at all the things that might have been piling up, like the chop, the, the trimmings or whatever, um, like what, what would I put in my little kitchen caddy that would be then going to the bin? It's like, oh. And then I started playing a game called, can I eat that? And I started thinking, <laughs> Is that really that kind of is that edible? Is that edible? <laughs> why, why am I throwing that away? Is that actually edible? Is there, is there any nutrient in that? So then I'd start to go, oh, avocados. I love avocados. Is the seed edible? Ha, huh, yes, it is. Fantastic. How do I play with it? Um, then is the skin edible? Yes, it is. Oh, great. I'll do this with this. Um, so I started just doing that and it turned out that I paired my, my food waste down to, um, well, really just coffee grinds because I didn't have a garden to put them into. But even eggshells, I realised, oh, I can turn that into calcium supplement. Oh, fantastic. So all of this is... Oh, you, <laughs> you, know, eat, you eat the eggshells. Well done. Yeah, well, yeah, well, at the moment I'm not having eggs at all. But, but when, <laughs> when I was eating eggs, yeah, one eggshell gives you the equivalent of roughly what your RDIs would be of calcium per day. So, um, but not everyone needs an entire eggshell. Like you don't need a calcium supplement for a day's worth. So um, I'd, I'd grind up a heap of them, you know, I'd, there's a process, but I, I basically keep a small jar of, of ground up, um, finely powdered eggshell in the fridge and, uh, and then just add it to some of my meal. If I knew that my day's calcium intake would be pretty low, I just add some, some uh, into my food. So just bump it up and then no waste. Simple. So, wow. so, so essentially, I think part of it is just to first pay attention, to have a look at what's, what we are doing. It's like, oh, I'm throwing out like a third of my bread, because most people throw out about 30% of our baked goods get thrown away. So it's like, oh, I'm throwing out like a half a loaf of bread or a third of a loaf. Maybe I'll buy a smaller loaf. Hmm. Maybe I'll freeze it when it gets to about halfway through the loaf. You know, so little things like that, you can start to play a little game with yourself, gamify it. It's like, oh, I wonder if I can reduce how many loaves I throw out if I do this instead. 
or, you know, just little things like that. But it first requires you paying attention to it. Uh, and so that's the first key because that what, what that will do, it will end up buying less. We won't buy as much of what we think we need. Yeah. We're just buying what we want or what we're used to purchasing. Uh, and at the moment with COVID, we've, we're stocking up on stuff because we're worried about scarcity. In this country, we grow enough food to feed 60 million people. We're not going to have food scarcity. <laughs> we're going to be just fine, people, yeah. just fine. So, so we can actually just buy what we need. And, you know, it just gives you more power then too. You're making decisions based on what you really know. It's a confidence thing. You can be really confident then in, in cooking. And there's some, there's some great stuff that some of the chefs are doing online at the moment about helping people learn how to cook more with some of the ingredients they have at home because you can't go out and buy this, that or the other or go out to dinner. And I like I follow the stuff, say, of Alice Zaslavsky, for example, and she does heaps of great you can do this at home with this that you left over last night sort of stuff. And, and it's fun. It can be really creative. So it doesn't have to be something daunting, like, Oh, I'm a bad person. We haven't always learned some of these skills. Like I never knew I could eat an avocado seed until I discovered I could, you know, I didn't like, know you could either. <laughs> yeah, I can. There you go. <laughs> if you ever do eat like? plants again, it, um, like? it tends to absorb a lot of the flavor of what it's cooked with. So it doesn't have a strong, slightly nutty flavor, like very subtle. Yeah. Um, but then it just, yeah, takes in the, the flavor of whatever else it's cooked in. Same thing with this, the, the skin. You don't eat the skin raw. You tend to uh, I bake things in it. So like I might have put in uh, and like I pull out some of the, the, the avocado flesh and I put in some egg and some cheese or something like that and then put it in the oven and bake it. And so the skin softens and just becomes like a jacket for whatever of, of it's cooked in. And then you just you not you eat the whole thing. You yeah, just eat yeah, it. yeah. And it just absor- once again absorbs the flavour of what you're eating. It loses, it loses that tartness that the skin would otherwise have and it's not tough at all. It's quite soft. Yeah, right. Okay, it's interesting. Is there, is there any issues with any uh, um, dangerous anti-nutrients in there at all? <laughs> well, it's a, they're plants, so hey, uh, okay. you know, <laughs> I think there's good luck finding a plant that hasn't got some sort of uh, anti-nutrient in it. I mean, you know, we know it just plants have a defense system, you know, as opposed to an animal uh, of any type or an insect or fish or any, or whatever. They can't run away from you know, what might be wishing to eat them. Yeah. So how do they prevent being eaten? They have their own defense systems. And um, so a lot of those things are um, essentially like insecticides to try and prevent insects eating them. And so we're consuming when we eat plants, especially if we eat them raw, if we don't do something to, to alter uh, what, what the actual um, structure is, yeah. we're essentially eating mini insecticides. <laughs> Yeah, and, they, and the other issue is that they don't really have the, um, they can't chelate a lot of the, the mm. external toxins with, you know, the sprays mm. and the whatever it might be that yeah. an animal can filter through its filtration mm. system, really. Um, there's lots of, lots of things, um, and, and maybe another podcast, um, yeah. certainly, to focus, because it, it it's a really fascinating topic, and, it, mm. and when you start wrapping your head around the stuff, like you and I have sort of been doing for, you've been mm. doing it for mm. a lot longer than me, but when you start understanding how we interact with our environment and how mm. we can improve it by going maybe against the status quo in some cases mm. um, and how that can help the, help the environment and then prolong our time here on earth and make it a really yes. enjoyable process 
we don't need to live lives of anxiety and paranoia no. and stress and, and fear. And mm. this is something that I can certainly attest to. My outlook on life has shifted dramatically despite going through tremendous adversity, um, especially over the last couple of years. And but my, the way that I'm able to now handle that is exemplary because I think that my body is now in a, in, a, in a homeostatic way of what we have evolved to become. Mm, I don't mm -hmm. know if homeostatic is the right word for it, but I think it is. Yeah, you're in, um, you feel like you're in balance. Exactly. And, and mm. when you can handle pressure and stress because your body's functioning well, your whole mm -hmm. life will shift. Mm. And if you are that person at home being overwhelmed by what's going on in the world, there is a place you can start and it's with yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's look, and it's okay to not be okay too at the moment. There's, you know, I know so many people that have contacted me to say there are some days they've just cried for what seems like no reason. Uh, and these are pe people who have really got it together and so forth. That doesn't mean that life can't be challenging some moments, but I guess that's the point. Those are all just a moment. And so this moment is the only one we've got. Like the, the whole thing about the power of now, Meckhart told this is it's only now. Yeah. that we have and yes the planet might no longer be something we as a species are on in seven years time or whatever um but like regardless i could also get hit by a bus crossing the road tomorrow you know um but i'm here now so this this now this is the bit that matters this bit right now and so even though i might want to go to mars in 10 years time the way i've i've been approaching that is to integrate that into my life so that the choices I make today and the behaviors I have today are ones that benefit me today, but for the best opportunity in the future as well. Beautifully said, Diana, and I'm very conscious of your and respecting your time. And I think um, here is probably a really great place to wrap this up with um, a final comment, if you're happy to make one on anything um, we've discussed today. Um, you're not obliged to at all, but um. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Look, actually, I'd like to make a comment about um, the name of the of your your YouTube channel as well about um, you know becoming your own superhuman uh, or superhero. Sorry, superhero. Superhero, yeah, same. Superhero, thing. same thing, same thing. People sometimes, and and me, myself as well. There's this thing about expectation. You know, nobody expects anything of you except you. Uh, and I know I'm, I've been guilty of this in the past. My expectations of myself and worrying about what other people might be expecting of me, 99% of the time, you're already exceeding everyone else's expectation. Yeah. So becoming your own superhero does not mean you have to try and be something that everyone else is going to think is sensational. They probably do already. Amazing. Amazing. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, you've left me pretty speechless there, Diane. And I, I just wanted to say that today was something that I've been looking forward to ever since we booked this in. I'm so, so grateful that you were able to take the time to do this. And I really look forward to the response uh, from the greater public. And I'm sure like a lot of people, um, uh, we're all very keen to see your progress and, and um, you know, maybe in, maybe in 10, 11 years time, if the world hasn't spun off its axis, um, <laughs> that we can wave our 
handkerchiefs from Cape Canaveral or, or Fort Lauderdale, wherever it is they send you off. And, and um, what a fascinating individual you are. And it's, it's been a pleasure to know you for this long. And I look forward to sort of um, getting to know more of Diane McGrath, Dr. Diane McGrath, when you get <laughs> Thanks, Laban. It's been fantastic being your um, guest on your inaugural show. Yes, thank you very much. Have a blessed day. Will do. And we'll leave it there. Arrivederci. <laughs> See ya. Bye. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.